Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Ong on the article COVID-19 in Critically Ill Children, a narrative review of the literature published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Ong is head of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the National University Hospital in Singapore. Welcome, Dr. Ong. Do you have any disclosures to report? I don't have any disclosures. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your study, um, the design, and and what you found. Uh, if you could summarize that for us. Sure. So. Um... The study came together really because we recognized that there was a wealth of literature that was coming out incredibly quickly. Um, I think all practitioners recognize that the speed of at which um, COVID-19 literature that's come is coming out is uh, almost too fast to really manage. And um, we thought a group of us, uh, in particular, Dr. Srinivas Murthy and Dr. Naranjan Kasun. Uh, contacted a group of us, uh, colleagues from Italy, Dr. Alvise Tosoni and Dr. Yejin Kim from South Korea to bring together um, some information and bring together what was available. Uh, this narrative review came together um, in mid-March um, and even then from then until now in the last three weeks, it's, uh, the amount of data that has come out has been incredibly quick. We tried to focus uh, our attention as far as possible on all the pediatric studies that were available in the English literature, um, as well as try and see what we could uh, obtain uh, elsewhere. But uh, it was a summary looking at the various epidemiological studies uh, and focusing really on the children on the more severe end of the spectrum. We discussed a little bit about why children are relatively spared and had a short, a short discussion about that and also talked very uh, sparingly on uh, some therapies, although there's very little information available right now. Um, specifically in the PEDS ICU, um, we recognized from the community there was discussion about non-invasive ventilation, the use of high-flow nasal cannulae, which are common and highly utilized by our community, and spoke about intubation. And then finally about the importance of our caregivers and our parents. And the focus that we try to have on family-centered care and potentially how that's impacted um, by this um, pandemic and the perfect storm of uh, increased PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, the level of anxiety and the difficulties with isolation. And so this paper was really born of the desire to try and bring together for the community some information about children on the, uh, with COVID-19 on perhaps the more critical end of, uh, end of the spectrum. Thank you so much for that lovely summary. Um, I'm curious, who were you testing in this study? Were you uh, testing symptomatic inpatients, all inpatients, outpatients as well? Uh, sort of what was your population? So uh, this, it is a narrative review of the literature. So it was to summarize the various um, epidemiological studies um, available. And as you can probably see, the vast number were actually taken from China, initially in the first um, beginning of the epidemic. And so there were really two very large cohorts, um, which we quote in the paper, which was the 
uh, Dong paper in pediatrics, which had over 2,000 children. Um, and I think recognizing the challenges of testing in the early part, I think um, in this particular series, um, they had one third that um, actually had true test positive disease and about two thirds that had clinical suspicion. I think just from the weight of, they didn't have, potentially didn't have enough tests at the beginning and the weight of clinical suspicion. And so um, I recognize that testing um, was not that what potentially as pre prevalent or readily available in Wuhan uh, early on in the epidemic. This obviously got a lot better. Um, in Korea, I think they had, a, in South Korea, they had a very aggressive and had ready access to several, uh, to test kits very, very early on um, in the onset of the epidemic for them. And in this instance, I think they um, really had very loose screening criteria. They would test quite readily um, in the whole population. So uh, the testing criteria are quite different depending on obviously where you were um, and what criteria were applied in the different countries. At least in Singapore, we're following um, a set of uh, Ministry of Health directed criteria um, that initially was quite narrow um, early on in uh, around the end of January. And, and as the pandemic has progressed, has become broader and broader and broader. And right now we're swabbing um, anyone who fills, who fills the very broad criteria that we're currently operating on. Uh, some of these patients are allowed to, for both pediatrics and adults, are allowed to be swabbed. And then if they're, if they're well, they can go home. Um, however, for the children, we've tried to, um, if they're at high risk, um, then we've tried to isolate them within uh, the hospital setting. Thank you uh, for that. So thinking about the different settings um, that you describe uh, in various geographic areas, can you describe some of the resource limitations that um, folks experienced in terms of testing? Was testing readily available um, in the beginning or kind of how that evolved? Um, the swabs, I know, were, have been limited here, uh, for example. Uh, in Singapore, we've had ready access to swabs pretty much at the, from the beginning. This was in um, late January. I think when the viral genome became available from Wuhan, um, our research laboratories in Singapore um, were uh, tasked to come up with a test kit. We also have commercial test kits. Um, and the swabs have been readily available um, throughout until more recently, where actually what we've been limited by is not so much the medium, um, media that's required or the, um, the PCR test kits, but rather the actual swab sticks that um, we've uh, recently been told that uh, are, we have to be uh, more uh, cautious in uh, swabbing because we recognize that actually, and the data does suggest this around the world, that right now still kids are far more likely to have a respiratory disease from our common viral illnesses, such as respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, influenza, 
um, and to have significant respiratory disease from that rather than COVID-19. And so we are uh, actively looking for those as well. And if you're swabbing a kid for COVID and influenza, and at the beginning, we were actually also doing a broad viral screen as well. That's three swabs per child. And so we were quite liberal. We're trying to see what spectrum we had in the population. I think uh, around the world, the availability of testing has also been quite varied. South Korea has had early and aggressive testing, as has had Taiwan. Um, I think in Italy, they also um, did testing or use utilized testing quite quickly um, in an attempt to try and control the, the spread of the disease. But um, uh, for my colleague, uh, Dr. Alvise Tosoni, I think the children um, have been relatively spared in Italy as well. And so I think uh, he's not commented on having any challenges with um, obtaining uh, swabs in that from that perspective. Um, we have all um, our criteria in each of the countries uh, remains quite different. Some are more uh, loose than others. However, and, but however, I think in Singapore, we're still adhering to um, fairly broad, but um, still specified criteria to, um, to swab the children. Thank you for that. Um, your paper describes that about 40% of the children were co-infected. What other viruses uh, did the, the various areas test for, uh, you mentioned the mycoplasma, influenza, RSV, um, that may have varied uh, in the different settings, um, but just curious what um, those co-infections, uh, which ones we were screening for. Right, so in the paper that was describing the 40% co-infection, that was actually from a small Wuhan study uh, from of just 20 children, and they of those 40% of the 20 children would have just been eight of those kids um, had um, were co-infected with the common things like influenza, RSV, and mycoplasma. And, and prior studies have shown that or coronavirus is, co uh, is a co-infection with other respiratory viruses. So at least in the Singapore context uh, of the children we have tested, I think, or at least the children in our center that we've tested the kids with, um, with the COVID-19 haven't, interestingly, haven't actually had the common winter viruses. But I also recognize that uh, influenza and RSV are seasonal in the rest of the world, but they are not in Singapore uh, because we're a hot and humid country year round. Uh, RSV and influenza happened, happen all the time. But interestingly, um, up till about November last year, we had quite a lot of influenza A in the community. And uh, these have all disappeared. I'm not entirely uh, clear about the phenomenon, but uh, with our, so we had a severe influenza spike somewhere around November, December 2019. And uh, though we've been swabbing almost all the kids for COVID and for influenza and for RSV, I haven't seen that. Um, so I'm not really certain where the influenza has gone, whether or not it's just uh, people are much more um, aware of uh, droplet transmission, hand hygiene, um, flu vaccination. I don't know, but uh, it's a really remarkable phenomenon. So I haven't, uh, while that paper in Wuhan quoted a 40% co-infection, I can't say that the data has been what limited, I mean, to be fair, what limited data there has been. Um, I haven't really, 
identified other papers that have um, very clear signals towards that. That also, I have to say, may um, be contextual in the sense that um, just anecdotally from Italy, I have heard that um, because they were so, their labs were overwhelmed with the COVID testing, there were so much, so many COVID tests that had to be done that they had to prioritize those tests and had to prioritize. I'm sorry, this actually relates to resource limitation as well. I just remembered that, um, that they actually had to prioritize COVID testing and other testing had to be kind of put aside. So it could be that we're not picking up because there were also lab limitations. They just could not run all the tests that they wanted to do, but had to focus on what was necessary. And so I don't know if that inherently will obviously introduce a, uh, a bias in the, the data that's going to be reported. But I think that um, to that end, I think it is a, I think right now children are, if they have severe respiratory disease, I feel the signal is still that they're far more likely to have um, severe influenza or severe RSV necessarily than severe COVID. But I mean, with the rise in cases around the world, I think we have to be very mindful of that. Uh, mindful of the tide maybe changing. Hopefully not, but I think we um, recognize that it might. Thank you uh, for that. I'm curious what precautions were taken for testing with the NP swab uh, and you could describe that in uh, the Singapore setting or um, elsewhere uh, if you're aware of that. For example, negative pressure rooms, full PPE, um, sort of what uh, what precautions were taken to protect the staff? Perhaps also I, I can start with um, uh, the context with which um, we responded to COVID-19. Singapore, Singapore was quite affected by the SARS epidemic 17 years ago. And since then, I think we've been very cautious with every new respiratory uh, pandemic that comes around, for instance, uh, H5N1, H1N1, and we actually have um, fairly frequent pandemic preparation exercises that it's a, it's a governmental initiative that all the public hospitals have to have a pandemic response plan and, and practice running through the entire pandemic simulation exercise as a hospital. So I think there is a, always a degree of uh, preparation and awareness on the ground. So when we started, started doing the COVID swabs, our full PPE would consist of an impermeable gown, goggles, uh, N95, gloves, and a cap. If we were doing uh, NP swabs for COVID, uh, initially because we were um, more cautious, everyone was doing it in a uh, powered air uh, purifying respirator, a PAPR, and we're also in terms of infrastructure, I think we're quite potentially, I guess the word would be prepared or forward thinking. Currently in my ICU and in, the, and in a lot of the emergency facilities around the island, we all have access to negative pressured rooms. Um, uh, in fact, um, the ICU in which I work, we have 16 negative pressure rooms in our area. This was really prepared and has been the case for about the last eight to 10 years, simply because of what we worried about with SARS and the move across the island that almost all the ICUs have uh, single rooms and 
a lot of them have access to negative pressure rooms and we're quite lucky to be able to house all these kids in negative pressure rooms. So um, I think we, were, we had the ability to um, wear the PPE that we felt was appropriate and house these kids in, I guess, the safest possible place uh, for them and for our healthcare workers. You have 16 uh, negative pressure rooms in an ICU, how large? I have, I have 18 beds, <laughs> 16 <laughs> of them are negative pressure rooms. I have two positive pressure rooms for um, like transplant kids um, and so on. But um, yeah, I, I recognize that um, having that, it didn't really dawn on me and what a, a luxury that was until I spent some time uh, overseas and visited a lot more ICUs. Um, and, I, I on, and this is actually not that uncommon, I'd say, in Asia, at least in, um, in places where they had, um, at least in Hong Kong and Singapore, where we've uh, had experience with SARS, I think that really uh, moved um, the different governments in ter terms of being prepared for something similar happening, happening again. And so I, I think to that end, we've been very, very fortunate that uh, we've had funding and we've had the political will and the preparation by the hospital to have all these uh, things on board. I, I have to admit that it's not going to be the case in many, 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 many other parts of the world, for sure. That is uh, extremely interesting, Dr. Ong. I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of what shifted post-SARS uh, in your country and uh, throughout the world. It sounds like um, that many of us have a lot to learn. <laughs> 17 years ago, is, um, it was in 2003, and so it was quite some time ago, but uh, at that time in Singapore, we had had a number of healthcare workers that were uh, unfortunately succumbed to SARS. And at that time, we, the ability to test for SARS came quite late in the disease um, transmission. And so there was a lot of, as you may well imagine, there was a lot of fear. There was a, and you do see this happening now that um, healthcare workers were very, um, uh, grieved by the fact of having to nurse their own colleagues and their own staff. I think the Singapore government has been very, uh, very forward-thinking in terms of recognizing that um, pandemics are going to happen, are likely to happen again and again. <laughs> and then, um, interestingly, we had, um, not interestingly, but I think very thankfully, um, last year, Singapore opened the National Center of Infectious Diseases. We recognized that there were the possibility of hemorrhagic fevers, imported diseases. And so there's a whole brand new facility that was just opened actually in September and October last year, really. Um, and again, it's designed much along the lines of uh, highly infectious pathogens. I think they visited various facilities around the world. And so I, I, I think that within Singapore, we've always had some degree of awareness and preparation um, that something like this would come around. And to that end, I think that's why we've had the, uh, the simulation exercise that, exercises that happen every few years. It's, it's, 
it's a massive undertaking. The entire hospital is involved. Everyone gets called back. Um, but we essentially prepare for uh, unexpected threats, unexpected uh, pathogens, and having to deal with them. Uh, it's uh, all that training, even though it's relatively spaced apart, does come to play in terms of uh, preparing for equipment. I think the other thing is that um, Singapore, all, all of our hospitals have had um, a lot of the staff uh, knowing that um, we have had these regular exercises um, and the experience from SARS, we actually had had already prepared a lot of videos and education on PPE, donning and doffing, those famous words. But um, a lot of us go through fairly regular training on it. Of course, we had to have refreshers and Nothing refreshes you faster than an emergency or a pandemic. So everyone relearned it all over again. But um, I think that uh, I suppose it was always uh, the recognition that uh, something like this might come around the corner again. I don't know if we necessarily did anything different, I think, um, or at least I'm not really answering the question particularly well, but I think the the recognition or, or preparedness from a governmental or from a societal point of view and within all the hospitals is regularly refreshed. And I think that's very, very important. And I think the other thing that has been really key is um, a lot of the, the, the healthcare response in Singapore is fairly centralized. Um, there's three clusters and all of us, um, this small country, the Ministry of Health is, has centralized the effort and so I think that has helped a long way in terms of organizing communication and the need to organize supplies and so on. So I think all of that has played a, a massive role. Yeah. Why do you believe uh, that kids are less severely affected? You described that um, most of the kids uh, that were identified in the studies in various uh, geographic areas had either asymptomatic, mild, or moderate illness. Um, what's your theory on that or uh, the theory of uh, you and your other collaborators? Mm. Um, it's a great question. I think um, so what has been well documented now both in the studies and really clinical evidence on the ground is that uh, kids are relatively spared or they have mild disease. As to why that is, I think that's a huge knowledge gap. Um, there's a lot of discussion with respect to the age-related distribution of the ACE2 receptors um, that the coronavirus gains access to uh, the cells as a receptor for the cells to gain access to it, similar to SARS-CoV, the first one. Um, and there is an age-related change in the distribution of um, ACE2 receptors in adults and in children. How that relates to actual clinical disease, um, it remains to be seen. There's also some interesting discussion about how the innate in immune response to children may um, be different in responding to coronavirus. And there's even some other interesting papers that I've uh, seen about how um, BCG vaccination in countries such as, so in Singapore, we get BCG vaccination at birth. And there's been some really interesting work coming out of um, uh, India and so on that's saying whether or not early BCG in the first, in the neonatal period, whether or not that somehow impacts or 
influences innate immunity and how it responds to other viruses prior to vaccination, prior to the vaccination of other uh, vaccines uh, conferring some degree of, of protection. And so um, we'll have to wait and see. I think, you know, watch this space. No one really understands why the kids are relatively protected. Having said that, I think there's good, there is precedent. And I mean, as you know, we all recognize if children get, uh, children get chicken pox, um, especially the younger they are and the taller, they're usually quite benign. They're quite well, whereas if adults get chicken pox, it can be quite a miserable um, time for them. And so there is some precedent to that where kids seem to be um, less touched by certain viral diseases than others. So I'd be very interested to hear if from um, people who are studying this phenomenon to see why they think this is the case. I think we've all experienced the challenges as, that this uh, disease has uh, posed to us, both um, in terms of the emotional toll on our, our team members, our staff, uh, as well as our families and community as a whole. Um, can you describe a little bit about uh, those challenges, uh, communications with caregivers, potentially even uh, visitation policies and, and um, how you all have, have handled this uh, in different regions? I think we are always, as a pediatric intensive care physicians, I think we strive to deliver uh, as far as possible family-centered care and that completely uh, gets upended, I think, during uh, a pandemic such as this, in part because of all the new and ever-changing isolation policies um, within our hospital. Um, with the advent of COVID-19 in Singapore, we limited people at the bedside to just parents. Uh, and this is, the context is also that in Singapore, we often families function as large family units with um, grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, often living in close proximity or together and they function as a huge family unit. So when a child is sick, then usually a large number of visitors do come to the bedside, particularly if they're in the pediatric uh, intensive care unit. So with the advent of COVID, we've had to focus the visitors to parents who often feel a lack of support because usually they're used to their own parents or their siblings provided additional emotional and psychological support. With the advent of more severe um, infections in the community. For the non-COVID patients, we've um, reduced it to one cat caregiver at the bedside, and that can be a strain on the parent, uh, either the mom or the dad to them, should be the, often on the receiving end of uh, the information, although we make the effort to call the other parent as well to try and update them. I think it, it is a real challenge. I think that um, with technology, how I'm going to take a step back also uh, when we've, so in Singapore, we've tried our best to still um, adopt a quarantine and isolation of children within the hospital. And there have been instances where we've had COVID positive kids and uh, no uh, caregiver, appropriate caregiver to, to be with them because uh, all their other caregivers, if the COVID positive ones may be too unwell to look after them and we're trying to, we can't have a, we need to protect any other COVID negative caregivers, parents or whoever else might be in the house. And so we've had some instances where the child, a young child, sometimes even under the age of one, 
um, unfortunately being uh, alone in the, ho uh, in the hospital room. And uh, as you recall, I said that uh, all our rooms in the PICU are negative pressured uh, rooms. And so these kids are behind uh, two doors because um, the negative rooms come with an anti-room. So it's been, we have to balance off protecting our caregivers, uh, protecting the caregivers, protecting our healthcare workers and attending to the needs of the child. While also, if we're weighing up confidentiality issues, if parents call into the ward, how, how to verify that they are the right parent. Um, it's been a real challenge and I think we're constantly trying to learn. I have heard of um, centers around the world that have tried to obtain, uh, using technology, tried to obtain iPads, tried to obtain phones for the unit so that the patients can video conference um, with the family members. And I think that is a great help. Um, also because uh, parents, if they're not allowed to be in the hospital, really do need to connect with a healthcare, a representative of the health of the healthcare team. And to that end, I think, um, as was uh, spoken of in the paper, in a, in a chaotic situation or if it's a very busy unit, having an assigned family care liaison officer would really help. I think uh, trying to find some avenue where um, anxious families might get regular um, timely updates on their children uh, is really important um, and I think that that reassures um, hopefully it it can never reassure completely um, but hopefully it goes some way to trying to alleviate uh, some of the anxiety but it is a challenge and the kids plenty of um, I see um, a lot of information out in on Twitter uh, on social media in terms of how healthcare professionals are trying to make the uh, sense of deeper, the depersonalization and the PPE and uh, with the goggles and the masks less for their patients. Um, but it is really hard uh, to manage that. Thank you for shedding a little light on a challenge that I think we're all facing in different ways. When, when are you discharging these COVID positive patients back into the community in Singapore? Um, in Singapore, they have to have, if they're COVID positive, right now they have to have, I believe, at least two or three negative swabs before they can go into the community. And there is, when they go into the community, they will still have people keeping tabs on their health. From what we have seen is that um, viral shedding has often a very tail end. There was actually a case report that came from Singapore. Our, the first um, baby that we had uh, positive in Singapore was very well, had only a bit of a runny nose and one spike of fever. But he actually carried a very high viral load and continued to shed for several days, even though he's completely afebrile and you know, bouncing around in, in the room. So... Um, we, I think in that particular instance, they waited until his swabs had come up negative uh, a few times before he was allowed uh, to go home. And, and as to whether, I think the question again remains is, you know, does shedding, for instance, there's much has been made uh, about the fecal shedding from the, uh, from the gastrointestinal tract in these children and how it might have a very long 
tail, unfortunately, we don't really know whether or not this fecal shedding actually translates to active disease. That is another knowledge gap that we haven't filled. And so that remains to be seen. We're constantly learning about this disease. Um, and I think uh, precautions potentially for children who are uh, diapered still or um, special needs kids that might need help. Um, we need, need to be mindful for uh, their caregivers and the healthcare workers that are working in the hospital about what appropriate advice to give them um, long after they might have gone home because they're really very well, uh, these children. Thank you so much for sharing that. What have you uh, learned that you'd like to share uh, with the pediatric community? I think my biggest lessons since starting all of this is that firstly, communication is really, really important um, from the, your hospital leadership, from uh, your department heads. Um, and that communication needs to happen across uh, all the uh, healthcare groups. So to the doctors, to the nurses, to our respiratory therapists, to all the allied health that work as a team. It is really important that frequent uh, and clear communication takes place. This is a hard balance to achieve in part because the, as you, you're probably fully aware by now, the policies on COVID change sometimes at the beginning, they seem to change every minute for us because we were all learning it together. And I do recall um, many a time where um, our head of our leadership said, you have to be patient with us because we are all also trying to get information off the ground. So I think asking your team, uh, com communicating with your team, asking your team to bear with each other and what seems to be a lot of changes and uncertainty, um, it has to be acknowledged as difficult. And I think that acknowledgement is, is important because everyone has a level of professional and personal anxiety that is real. And so people want information and being healthcare professionals, we usually want information quickly. <laughs> and it's not always possible to achieve because we are all learning uh, together. I think the next thing that's really important to, as we go all through this, is to practice doing the basics well. And I think for kids in particular, we should just carry on doing what we've always tried to do our best at, um, looking after the kids, looking after their symptoms, looking at their mental well-being. Um, so do, I think the recognition is that we want to continue doing what we're doing all the time. And to that end, I think we didn't really, haven't really talked about um, things like the use of NIV and high flow nasal cannulae, which we use much more readily in peds. I think that um, since right now the signal still seems to be that kids are more likely to be sick from non-COVID related illnesses that we want to be able to, we would still consider using uh, NIV and high flow in these kids with the important caveats and risks that we acknowledge. Um, I think that it is important to reassure your uh, healthcare workers that their safety is paramount. So it's really important because I think that really goes a long way in terms of forming, forming a, a team to look after uh, these children and these patients. I think also that in all of this, I think the other things that need to be planned for in terms of, um, I think 
right now there's a lot of surge planning that's happening in many places uh, around the world. I think having those plans in place um, early is, is a good idea. Uh, we thought about in Singapore, um, we moved to a split team system um, in the, at the end of February where we had a, uh, a system where we had rotating teams such that we had one clinical team on and one clinical team off. And we had planned that particular plan sometime at the beginning of February <laughs> and we were just waiting to see if it would get activated. So if you can do those things early so that um, people recognize that uh, it's on the horizon. I'm sure it's happened for many of us already, but there is a lot of disruption. A lot of our annual leave and vacation um, was frozen somewhere around February. And so we realized that um, we had some ability to make sure people uh, were in the right place at the right time and um, being cognizant that it's likely to happen. Yeah, so I think um, you, you almost can't prepare enough. And if you prepare and it doesn't happen, that's great. <laughs> I think that's probably the best scenario. Um, but if you prepare and it does happen, then at least you will have thought about it along the way rather than having to make it up as you go along. Dr. Ong, thank you so much for your time during this busy season and this very important contribution to the literature and best wishes to you and your collaborators, your teams and your families. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Elizabeth H. Mack, MD, MS, FCCM, is a professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric critical care at Medical University of South Carolina Children's Health in Charleston, South Carolina, USA. Dr. Mack received her Bachelor of Science and Medical Degrees from the University of South Carolina. She completed her residency at University of South Carolina Palmetto Health and her fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She also completed a Master of Science degree with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Cincinnati. Currently, she serves as chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on critical care and is past chair of SECM's Current Concepts in Pediatric Critical Care course. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.